Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 281. We are in the beginning of the month of Cheshvan, which is what some call the dry month in a way, relative to the holiday season, the rich holiday season of Tishrei. We've now entered in a dry season in the sense that there are no holidays in this month. We've spoken about this a number of times. A beautiful sikha from the Rebbe where he explains why that's the case. Because now is the real litmus test. After we've been enriched and empowered by all the energy and all the nourishment and uh, abundance that came from Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Shemini Atzeret, Simchus and uh, Shabbos Bereshis, and we now will see how we unpack all of this into our personal lives. So the best way to test it is by actually having a situation where you don't have any holidays now to lean back on. You have the strength, but now comes our Aveda, our work on our, our effort, which of course is never as dramatic and as uh, is, uh, sensational as when you have the Giluyim, the revelations of a powerful month like Tishrei, but where life really plays itself out and the purpose of existence is fulfilled and realized is when we are, so to speak, on our own. I don't want to say we're on our own, we're never on our own, but on a revealed level, we are now asked to rise to the occasion. And that effort, even though it does not have all that revelation, is the key to the entire purpose of existence. Because, as Chassidus explains, before the Tzimtzum Arishan, Erein Sof, dominated divine consciousness, was the only thing that existed. Then even after the Tzimtzum, the higher worlds, Atzilus, Ak, and then the other worlds in Atzilus, are all, of course, they're divine. What's the Chiddush? There's no Chiddush in that, as the Altar Rebbe explains in chapter 36 in Tanya. As one of the explanations goes, that's a Yerida, because God is always higher than those, all those revelations. Where does it change is in Tachtenim. We come into a world that is devoid on a revealed level of divine revelation. And that's where the purpose is. That's where the Nesava, the God's desire is. That in a world that on its own can, is divine God, uh, energy is concealed that we're able to discover it, the spark, and fan it, and ultimately transform the material world, which on its own is can even oppose the divine to become an actual home, an abode, a comfortable environment for the divine. So in the months of the year, Cheshvan captures that a lot more than Tishrei does. So Tishrei is like the power of the holidays, and Cheshvan is where it plays itself out in real life in our routines, in our patterns, in our daily mundane activities. So yes, we have a Shabbos each week, of course, and we have different days that we can look to, like, for example, Zayin Cheshvan, which I'll talk about in a moment. Chav Cheshvan is the birthday of the Rebbe Rashab. But holidays, a Pitero, or Tere Shabiksav, or Tere Shabal even Pemini Yisrael, we don't have during this month. And therein lies its power. So, of course, it's very fitting then that this will be the week of Lech Lecha. What is Lech Lecha? Lech Lecha ma'atzcha ma'meladatcha ma'beseh As Chassidus explains, the Rebbe explains, that Lech Lecha refers to every journey, every journey out of your comfort zone. Whether it's a comfort zone that may be a negative place, like where Avram was leaving was not the best place. He was going toward the promised land. But Lech Lecha is a reference to every journey requires moving out of your comfort zone, whether it's a, if it's a holy comfort zone, not, you cannot just do it by rote or mechanically, but it has to be a journey, a traveling, to go to a place that's beyond where you've been there before. 
And of course, Zayin Cheshven also indicates journey. What is Zayin Cheshven? Zayin Cheshven, according to Allah, we don't begin to ask for the rain, even though we prayed for it, Ashmini Atzeres, and we, the prayers were fulfilled, but we ask that the rain hold up until Zayin Cheshven. That's when we really begin to ask for it. That's Yisrael. Because, the reason as the Shulchan Aruch brings, because the Jews who were Eila, Laregel, the pilgrimage that they made to the Beis Amigdash for Sukkot, they traveled back, so some lived closer to Israel. But the, the ones that lived the farthest from Israel during the Second Temple was the people who went back to uh, Babylon, which is Euphrates. The Euphrates River, the last ones that came to Israel, took them till Zion Cheshvan, till the 7th of Cheshvan. So in a sense, it's like the conclusion, as the Altar Rebbe cites, it's like the conclusion of the holiday in a way, because they're still under the, under the effect and the aura of the holidays until they get there, and not to make their lives uncomfortable by causing it to be raining on their journey, we, we, we make sure that we, the rains don't begin to fall till after that. Now, there's a lot to be said about that in the Avis Yisrael, the lesson of Avis Yisrael, that even though rain is so important, we hold back because there may be one person who may be uncomfortable. But one point that, that I want to focus on is the journey aspect. That you see, the holiday does not conclude just with Simchus Teir. It includes with the Yaakov Holochlodarke in the expression that's used, that the Rabbeim used, the journey. The journey to return back to your home and settle back there with enriched and empowered by all the holidays. And that becomes then, and that's when we, and that's why Zayin Cheshvan is a significant date with Takhran and so on, because that's when the last ones arrived there. But if you think deeper into it, it means that it's not enough just to have the holidays, but it's, it's necessary that you go back in peace with the power of the holidays in order to integrate it and internalize it in your life, which is, of course, the significance to us today. And therefore, Lech Lecha and Zayin Cheshvan are have a connection as the Rebbe speaks in a number of sikhs, number of talks. He also connects it, of course, to things, the themes that are connected to Pasha Lech and as well as Pasha Neach, which is, we'll be talking about in a moment. But I want to begin, I should have said this earlier, that this program is dedicated in honor of Mati Jacobson and Sarah Denberg upon their wedding on the 6th of Cheshvan, which is tomorrow, dedicated by the Jacobson family. So that should have been stated at the outset. I'm saying it right now. I got caught up in the passion of the description of the time in which we are in. This is also an opportunity to uh, announce that at chassidahsupply.com you can find all the archives of these programs. You can uh, submit any question anonymously, confidentially on our, our anonymous forum, as well as take advantage of the other resources that you can find at chassidahsupply.com. Okay. Now, cross-referencing, I've spoken about Zayin Cheshvan and Lech Lecha, in episodes 40, 86, 136, 185, and 231. I'd like to be thorough since there's been t- different angles I've been discussed. I'd like to do the cross-referencing to include it all, even though, yes, it takes effort for you to press those buttons to go there, but in case you want to hear more about this, it was discussed then. Okay. But because the theme of this week is when we're coming from Parshanayach, which we know was the story of the flood and the destruction, the cleansing of the world, as we discussed last week, and preparing it for Ilam Chodosh Ra, a new world was created. With Noyach coming out of the, the ark together with his family, they built a new world, a world that would now be refined on a deeper level and one that can become a Dira The world before the Mabel had a lot, a lot of power, but it all came from above. 
It was lacking what I mentioned with Cheshvan. It was lacking that effort from below. And after the marble now became an earth that is more refined and now able to also um, produce, which is why 10 generations from Noyach, the end of Pasha Noyach begins Avram's story. Avram, he, Esen Godel, as the Rambam said, Esen Godel, this great power, this great force that entered the world and begin to shine and illuminate and bring godliness back into human consciousness. That was concealed with the beginning when they ate from the tree of knowledge and it got worse as it progressed. Of course, the marble was the low point. And then it began to, the world was refined with the marble and then with Avram Avinu began the process of so-called cleaning the pipes and reconnecting the, the world, the existence with the divine. I'm going to get into the difference in Avram and Noyach here. That's not relevant to our discussion. So the end of Noyach starts the story of Avram Avinu. And Lach Lachach continues the story of Avram's journey. A big theme in these chapters is, as we all know, Bnei Noyach. We talk about Bnei Noyach, that the nations of the world are often referred to as the children of Noyach. But they're also referred sometimes to the children of Avram, Av HaMoyin Goyim father of all nations. Obviously, Avram came from Shem, one of the three sons of Noyach, and the other two sons were also ancestors to the human population today. But both of them associate the nations of the world, because remember, there was no Jewish nation yet in the formal sense of the word. That would not happen till the 26th generation from creation, meaning six generations after Avram Avinu, after Abraham. But, big, but the seeds have been planted of, God, of, of Ramavinu introducing godliness. To whom? To the nations. So therefore, I thought appropriate to address a few questions that were connected to exactly that. Sheva Mitzvah's B'nai Neyach. Now I should add that the Rebbe speaks about it in one of the talks of Zion Cheshvan. He says, Zion Cheshvan is about the Aveda being, the work being, back in your home, in your place. Which means not to be in Eretz Yisrael, in Israel, in the Holy Land, and the holy city of Yerushalayim, and the holy place called the Beis Amikdosh, but to bring that holiness back to where you are. And the Rebbe says that is essentially the theme of the Shev Mitzvah Bnei Neach. Because the nations of the world, after the Mabel, what happened? We have the Der HaFloga. The end of Neach is another story before Avram, is the story of the Der HaFloga, which is the generation that went and built the Tower of Babel to defy God, or they were self-made creatures. And ultimately, God felt the need to confuse their language so they should separate and then Misham. And from there they spread out all over the world. And that, that, the downside of it is they were not unified anymore. But the upside is they spread around the world in order to transform the world, that each one would do it in their own way, with their own language, with their own particular customs. And that's the world in which we live in today. Obviously it took time till the transmigration was complete. But the world, that's where it began, the transmigration. And slowly from that Mesopotamian valley, slowly spread, and populations began to grow throughout Asia and then through Europe and Africa, as well as ultimately to, in the Chatzikadra Tachten, our hemisphere, meaning, our, meaning the, the Americas, and uh, the rest of the world. So that spreading on one hand was due to the fact that they reunited for their bad cause, but spreading also has the advantage that it's like a Zion Cheshvan experience. Everyone goes to their place in order to refine their corner of the world. So here are a few questions that have come in on this topic, and it's not the first time we've talked about it. So let me just read a few of them, and I will address it. Here we are. 
Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. As this week is Parsha Nayach, that was last week, can you please give clarity on what we should be doing for Sheva Mitzvah's Bnei Nech and the background behind it? In the times of Shleim HaMelech, King Solomon, it was peaceful. Did the Yidden then, did the Jews then, teach the non-Jews the seven Noahide laws? Will Noach be around when Mashiach comes? Thanks. Another question in this uh, family. You said once on your podcast that non-Jews are becheskes tzadike umeseelam. Becheskes chsidi umeseelam, I should say. That they are considered to be righteous Gentiles today. Do you still hold that? So let me begin with that question first. Now, I never said it quite that way. The way I would phrase it would be is that the nations of the world are in general today actual or potential righteous Gentiles, based on the Rebbe Sichas of Malchus Shaches in America and other nations of the world. So they are, and we're right at the threshold of Geula, of redemption, that all it takes is just to light the spark and the nations will embrace principles that they've already embraced, which was not the case hundreds of years ago. Principles of justice, of charity, of kindness, of benevolence, based on Avraham Avinu's teachings, which we've talked about a number of times. So let me go back now to the first question. The process is this. As, uh, let me just go back to the beginning. It says, God created the heaven and earth, gracious. The last day of creation, after the whole stage was set, the table was set, he brought Adam and Eve into the world and says, you shall serve and protect. In the language of Chassidus, based on Madrashim and so on, it is the world that we are there to charge to transform and make it a dira b'tachtenim, a home for God in this material world. We were given choice, because in this world, as I mentioned before, the divine is concealed. Even in Ganeidin, they had choice. And they made the wrong choice. And the wrong choice conceals the divine, or conceals it even more. The right choice reveals the divine. The famous medrash that's brought in the first Maimah, Bosiligani, Tovshin Yud from the Friedrich Rebbe, and the Rebbe reviewed it and explained it every year, a chapter per year of the 20 chapters. What does it begin with the medrash in Shira Shirim? Rabbi, Bosiligani, Achesi Kala, Ligani, like Sivkin, Lignuni. El Ligani. doesn't say Lignuni, El Ligani, because the primary Shkina was down on earth when Adam and Eve were in the garden. However, by the way, they ate from the tree of knowledge. It was nostalgic. It was removed to the first heaven from earth. Removed means concealed. And each subsequent generation of transgression essentially created dissonance, a separation, a schism between the existence and its purpose, its divine purpose. Think of a machine, which is called life. It's created for a purpose. And if you don't fulfill that purpose, you disconnect it from the operate, from the architect and the engineer's kavona and intention in creating it. And how, and how do you follow those laws? Positive mitzvahs, negative mitzvahs, the things you're supposed to do to make the, a home for the divine and the things you're supposed to avoid. Then comes generation after generation concealment, the marble. I mentioned that earlier briefly. The marble, like, reset the start button, restarted the process by cleansing and now creating a world that is more capable of becoming such a home. And Avram Avinu, ten generations from Noyach, began to bring the Shekhinah back down from the seventh heaven to the sixth, Yitzchak from the sixth to the fifth, each subsequent generation, till the seventh generation, Moshe Rabbeinu, from Avram, brought it down to earth, 
with the building of the Mishkan, of the temple, of the sanctuary that followed Matan Torah Sinai, that followed the exodus from Egypt. That's the story. Then after Torah, Matan Torah, now the world has now been, has been given a power that you can actually transform materialism to make it a chefzer shagdusha, to take matter and turn it into spirit. And that has been the works ever since, from then till this day. When that work is finished, or to some extent finished from our part, and God can always choose depending when the tipping point is, the Mashiach Geula comes, and what is then? The Nigla Kved Hashem, the divine is revealed even more than it was at Sinai, and even more than it was in Gan Eden before the sin, and the total transformation of the universe now forever. With the third temple, Mola Oriz Deus Hashem Kamayim a world filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. And all other expressions and verses in Yeshaya and other, and other prophecies that Maimonides cites some of them at the end of his Mishnah Teir. That's the story in history. As the Rebbe tells us, that process, we have come to the end, or close to the end. And we just have to do something to tip the scale. But these years, these thousands of years of work, have refined the world to the point that the nations of the world themselves are no longer those pagan nations that were just bloodlusting and pagan and completely idolatrous. You have nations that embrace principles. Not completely, but the principles were given all the way by to other magician, actually. It says that, why they called them Sheva Mitzvah, B'nai Noyach. Why not B'nai Adam? Because the seventh one was added to, to uh, Noyach. And Noyach ratified also the ones given to Adam because after the destruction of the world, Noyach was the only one left. And now all people come from B'nai Noyach, the children of Noyach. So Neich was given a code, a code of ethics and morality called the Sheva Mitzvah as the Rambam explains. That code was spelled out at Mount Sinai as well, that the Jewish people have a responsibility, not just to do their mitzvahs, but to share and to inspire and to empower and disseminate these seven Noahide laws, which, as commentaries and as Poskim explain, are much more than seven. They're seven general principles. And this has been done over the years, as the Rebbe explains in many of his talks from the Mems, the 80s, it was simply not possible for the Jewish people to do that because they were in sakana in danger, basically trying to protect themselves, let alone trying to influence the non-Jews would have not been taken exactly lightly. But now we have that opportunity. But that doesn't mean that work has not been done in different ways during Shas, Zman Shas, Yad Rabbi Yehuda, and others that worked with non-Jews. And Avram himself, Megayres Anoshim and Noshim, and Sodom Anoshim. And Matan Teir itself had an impact on the nations of the world, which we've discussed also a number of times, directly, indirectly, and ultimately it impacted that, yes, the religions of Christianity and Islam in some ways are based on principles that Avram Avinu taught and were confirmed and formalized at, at Sinai. But, this is this, but that doesn't mean the work was done. So essentially the work was to refine the world meant refine ourselves. I'm talking about the Jewish people and our personal lives and our communities and our environments. But it extends also to spread the message and disseminate it through the nations of the world that they should too be refined and to embrace the divine mandate that they were given to civilize this world and to turn it into a just world and a kind world and a compassionate world. And we are deep in that process, which means a lot has been done but there's always more work to be done. So when you ask the question, what should we do for Shabbat Mitzvah? The Rebbe makes it very clear. Every opportunity we have, whether it's individuals that we speak to, or it's in business, 
that we're doing business or you go to a doctor or a lawyer or whatever it may be, wherever you have the opportunity is to somewhat, in a, in a nice way, talk about God, give them a book to read, inspire, teach, very similar how we would do with our own brethren, with our own brothers and sisters. Because they too have a mandate and they will be thankful to us and, and respond positively. Those that have influence in government and government officials and public leaders or business leaders or, or, uh, or educational leaders or professors or so on can do it through that means. Whatever means possible, we have to use the opportunity to teach people and to educate and inspire. And obviously not in a condescending, God forbid, way, but in a beautiful way, in a way of sharing the, this moral code, which is the, upon which rests the entire foundation of all ethics. The concept that there's an eye that sees and the ear that hears, the concept of moment of silence, and on and on, which I'm not going to go into detail because I'm going to give you some references to times I spoke about this more at length. Yes, in time of Shleim HaMelech, we say there's a taste of this because Shleim HaMelech was a peaceful time, and Malchus Shva and others came and brought gifts to Shleim HaMelech. So he was like a, a powerful flame drawing the sparks to him. But there was no question, wherever there was an opportunity, the Jewish people and their leaders had influence. Look, Mordechai had influence on Achashverosh. Moshe had influence on Pare, with all the challenges. So it was always the attempt to make to have that influence. Sometimes it was difficult, sometimes it wasn't received well, but the effort was always made because that was the Kavon. Everyone knew from the beginning of history that's the intention. It's not some modern phenomenon. Will Noach be around when Mashiach comes? Well, look, whether it's a Gilgal of Noach, a reincarnation of Noach, or obviously his children and his pedigree and his descendants will be around. I have not seen anywhere Noach. Why not? If he was an Ish Sadiq, why would he not return? But that's something that can be looked into, but that's my initial reaction. Now, going back to Chesidim Salem, so they're not, I wouldn't call them Becheskas, call them that they're now in a state where they're either actual or potentially righteous Gentiles. And it's not something that, it's something that we, can, we can access. Which means you can speak to someone and you, and you educate them. And many people are already receptive they're already behaving in righteous ways. But maybe some are not doing it completely or uh, like all of us are not perfect. But we're in a place where we can definitely influence the nations of the world in that way as explained in many, many sikhs. So I want to make the cross-references to episodes 30, 112, 192 through 194, 240, 247, 267, and 271. This was an overview, and I hope I answered some of the questions, and of course very relevant to our time, meaning what we're reading now in the Torah, which is Noyach and Avram, because you see their story. If you put, think of it in the bird's-eye view context, as I just laid out, you see how eloquent the story is with all the difficulties and challenges, but it's a story that unfolds from the beginning of history, the transformation of the world, which includes the nations of the world, which actually began with the nations, and from there grew out Goy of Goy, the nation of Israel. So even the Jewish people came from the nations of the world. They were children of Noach, Semites, from Shem, Avram Avinu. And they embraced willingly, Avram, starting from Avram, the principles of the divine principles, and slowly made it part of their family. That's what Abraham did, that he educated and trained his family to continue this legacy of kindness and justice. And that continued through the generations, all the way to Yitzchak, Yaakov, and then the Shvatim, 
And even when they went to Mitzrayim, they maintained that standard, despite the great bondage, and they ultimately would come out of the Golos, greater and stronger than ever, and the nation would be built and forged at Sinai, and the rest is history. Now they would then go back to their cousins and to all their relations, whether it's the children of Esau or the children of Yishmael, which are cousins of the Jewish people because they're children of Avram and Yitzchak respectively. Um, I should have said the other order, Yishmael first, then Esau. And to teach them what their own father taught them. The morality and ethics of Zdokar and Mishpat through the Sheva Mitzvah, B'nai Neyach. And the rest I've already shared how that evolves all the way till the end of time when we finally refine the world and the nations are refined and Mashiach is ready to come. So with that, we'll go to another question which flows straight from this. Are we truly a light onto the nations? Every Eastern cultures have had very little connection with Judaism, yet they make up more than half of the world's population. So then how can we really say that we are supposed to be a light onto the nations if we had very little exposure with half the world? Okay, very good question. When we talk about Eastern culture, we talk about Western cultures, which I just discussed. You could say Christianity was the major religion, and Islam is really the covers almost um, uh, a large, large percentage of the Western world. Even the Eastern world has embraced some of it as well. But when you talk about the Eastern and Far Eastern cultures, correct? Jewish Jews did not really live there. Recently, they have. They live more, but not never in large numbers. And the question, of course, is, so when you say light onto nations, what are we ignoring half the world? India? China? Right there you have half the world. So the answer, my friends, is this. Firstly, you may be familiar with the fact that Avram Avinu, in Parsha Chai after Sarah's passing, he went back and took Tudor, which was Hagar, and had children with her. And then he sent those children, it says, to the east, laden with gifts. And Rashi says, Shemus, names, Yes, they may have been names with uh, negative energy, but they, were holy, but, they were, but they were spiritual names. And some explained that this was the spirituality that was passed on through these children of Avram Avinu that would later become Buddhism and some of the other major Eastern th- th- thoughts and cultures and religions, if, if you can call it a religion. And that's why some point out, there are books about this, that Brahmin in, uh, in uh, Buddhism is the concept of Abraham, Abrahamin, as well as other words and themes and that's why also you'll find a lot of similarities between Eastern thought, schools of thought, and mysticism, Jewish mysticism. Many Jews in the 60s, looking for their soul, went off to the East because they did not find it in their own backyards, unfortunately, tragically. But many through that came back to Yiddishkeit and then discovered it in Chassidus, which of course follows Kabbalah. So a lot of the spiritual ideas there. I have interacted with many people that are masters of that school of thought, those schools of thought, some of them Jews, and even famous ones as well, leaders, and they were amazed about the similarities. And if you look in schedule, if you look at the, the historical roots, you, it's not difficult to imagine that of Ramavinu, who was the father of monotheism and maybe the first pioneer of spiritual thought in history, would have children and definitely students that would transmigrate as they moved to different places. So it's not uh, inconceivable to say that the Eastern cultures are also influenced by these ideas and thoughts. Second point one can make is based on the famous story with the Magid Beis Yosef, that once they set a big chiddush, a big innovation in, in learning, and the students were amazed at this innovation, and then later then one of them was traveling and, he's, and he came to a small town, and they're having a shir in that particular Gemara, and they're simple, 
a simple, relatively simple, not scholar teacher, says exactly the innovation that he heard just now from his great master. So he went back disturbed and said, you said something that was definitely a chiddush that no one ever thought of. And here, relatively simpler person is saying it. So he said, once a, there's a breakthrough, and a tzinner, a channel opens up of an idea that comes into this world, it affects everybody and makes it easier for everyone to come to the same conclusion. Which also explains the whole industrial revolution, just as an aside, but it helps to understand this, that suddenly, not in a seemingly progressive way, you would think innovation should have happened every hundred years, every another hundred years, but suddenly in a period of time which is identified usually 1840, the year Tov Reish, there was an explosion, exactly as Isaiah predicts, an explosion of upper knowledge, higher knowledge, and lower knowledge of science that was called the Industrial Revolution. Now, of course, it's an accumulation of much that happened before that. But once something opens up, the channels open up on the higher levels, it also opens up on the lower wisdom. And it's only gotten accelerated ever since with the computer revolution and the atomic revolution and the nuclear revolution and the information revolution, etc. So you can say that the Sinai impacted not just the Western world, it impacted the, the entire world and made, laid the ground that truths can be found everywhere. Those are the two points I would make. Now, finally, today, we could be a light on to all nations. And we should be a light on to all nations because with technology and with travel, with so many people doing business in the East and Far East, and with technology, now there is no limit like that at all. In Korea, they love to learn Talmud. I have no doubt that if we would disseminate spiritual thoughts and ideas to the Eastern cultures, they would gobble it up. They would eat it up. Because firstly, they already have in their own culture similar ideas. And they would see fascinating insights into the human condition, into transcendence, into spirituality. So that, that was the response to that. Okay. So let's move that. So we've covered a noyach lach lacha type of thing going in the beginning of this year. The Rebbe equates working with the non-Jewish world as with Zion Cheshvan, with traveling into the world, because in Tishrei we're more or less secluded in our own shuls, and our own communities, celebrating. But now we go out to the world, whether it's the Euphrates in Babylon, or, the, or symbolically any other place we travel to, is the work of transforming the world with the energies we received in the month of Tishrei. So I'm moving on to another topic completely, well, nothing is unrelated as we know, but at least ostensibly, it's not directly related. And that is Lubavitchers and Pais. Why do some Jews have long Pais sidelocks and others do not? It's one question. Another question was asked. Many pictures of the Alter Rebbe. Well, I wouldn't say many. There's one picture of the Alter Rebbe. There's one portrait, a, a painting. Show him with Pais. Yes, well, let's just make it clear. It's not payers that run down. You see here, over the ear, behind, you see that they did not cut it based on that portrait. And the Rabbeim already were made. They, they bared witness and testified to the accuracy of that portrait. So why are they not the standard among Chassidim today? That question I've never seen before. Well, we'll try to answer the best of my ability. And hopefully, as this is a partnership, you can engage with me and share your thoughts if you have some insights, something that I may have missed, something that may have been said, please. So let me give a quick summary. First of all, the concept of pay, beard and payas. Because there's two separate things. There's a beard, male beard, and there's payas that grow down. 
from the head, from the hair on the cranium, the hair on the head. So it says clearly in Vayikra, Vayikra Yutes Chovzayin, 1927, Leviticus, the Iser, it's a Iser Daraisa that you're not supposed to cut your, the, the pace. It's translated from the Torah, do not round off the hair at the edges of your heads. Mora Makis, 20b, explains that the term edges refers to the hair between the ears and temples. So rounding out the edges would mean refers to removing the sideburns so that there's a straight hairline from the forehead to behind the ears. Now in Halacha, this is of course cited in Halacha, in the Rambam, Mishneh Teir Hilchus Avedu Zara 12.1, in Beis Yosef on the tour, Yerideh 181, and the reason given there, as well as in the Chinuch 251 and Meir Nevuchim 337, is because it's, this is what idolaters, idol, idolaters, people who are idol worshippers, that's how they, they would cut there. So to distinguish from that, that's why it's not done. Some say about the side locks, meaning the payas on the sides, the side, that that's exerced Kosovo and not necessarily due to that reason. That's in Tur Yeridei 181 and Darke Mesha and the Prisha on location. Okay. But the question now is the length of the pace. We establish now that there is a need to live the pace. The question is the length of the pace. You see some chassidim who wear pace long, some longer than others, and some like Chabad, as it is also meaning of Ashkenaz and many Sephardi communities, that you cut the pace where it reaches the beard. So, um, and, and I should add that there are Sephardic Yemenite and others that do also grow long pace. So there's different customs. The question is, what is the basis of it and why each one does what they do? So let's treat first a little practical, then we'll talk about the mystical reasons. So, in Shulchan Aruch Yeridea, 181.9, um, the question is, where do you cut the pace? Where is the limit? Where, what means pace? Is it below the air, which means would be till here, or is it to the side of the air, which would mean somewhere here? So one would be where the beard begins, and the other would be a little deeper into the beard. So it's not that clear, it's ambiguous in the Shulchan Aruch, because it says there, stating that the area extends to below the ear, but then going on to explain that it extends to the place where the upper and lower jaw bones meet, which implies that it's the side of the ear. I'm not going to go into of course, the halachas of it, because that's not the, this form. I just wanted to, for the full picture, share that with you. Now, there's a discussion at length, and I'll give you some sources. The Tzemach Tzedek, of course, talks about it on Mishnayis Makis, the Makis I mentioned, 3, 5. And Encyclopedia Talmud, it, it brings together all the different opinions. The Erech is the entry, HaKofis HaRosh, volume 10, pages 546 and 547. So basically, we have, a, that's Halacha. Now the question is the custom. And what is the custom? What happens now? So here we have a few things. Let's talk first about the reason that we do not cut, the reason we cut the pears. So the Arizal says, the Arizal, in, uh, I'll give you the source, in Sharei, um, the exact expression is like this. Actually, I'm taking a lot from a sefer called Peyes Ka'aloch. It's a, it's a contemporary book that, sefer that gathers together all the different opinions. So the Rizal says, in Pashuk Deshim, on the, on, um, in the Taimi HaMitzvahs, 
as well as the Shar HaMitzvahs. Basically, he's saying, uh, Rab Chaim Vital writes, my teacher custom was, custom was, he would let them grow the payas and he wouldn't cut them until they reached below in the place where the, the beard begins to grow. Mamish. Ad lamatim mokim sarazokin, mamish. That's when he cut them to the shear of that location. Because from there and lower is not called pa'asaresh. That's not called payas anymore. And he says the same thing that he would cut them with, with uh, uh, scissors, I should add, misperaim. And not allow them to basically to mingle with the beard. And that's the basis of the Minik Chabad. It's clear Ariza. There's actually a letter from the Rebbe to Rabbi Yolis, dated Chovav Tishrei, Tovshin Chofalov, where he asked the Rebbe, where he asked the Rebbe about this, why, why Chabad does not, does, does not, does, does touch the peis. He said that he writes, This custom, not to touch peis, the Rebbe says, I have not seen it, seen it in Chabad, on the contrary. In other words, Davka emphasis to cut it. The Rebbe says several reasons can be said, but maybe one of the reasons which you hint to in your letter, is not to mix the ha'oris, the, the, the energies, of the two tikkunim, the two um, ornaments, if you wish, of the yud gimel tikkunay dikna. Because the yud gimel tikkunay dikna refers to the 13 ornaments, the 13 strands of, you, of the beard, tikkunay gdisha. So not to mix the ones, payas and the beard. Because they're both tikkunay dikna, but different tikkunim. Well, the Cholay from the Rebbe says, Mefurish Arizal Oyechitchen Mekatsum Bemisparai. It's Mefurish, explicit that Arizal cut them and trimmed them with, with uh, scissors. And Alpia Omer, the Rebbe says, and this is Chal, the famous thing the Rebbe would bring about Rav Mahader to do things, since it's Nafik Bepumid Rav Kahana, even Alpia Locha was questionable how something should be done. Um, he followed what his teacher said. And the Rebbe says, even more so here, because not just what his teacher said, but what his teacher did. At the end, the Rebbe adds, according to the above, the the question, and a strong question, is on those that do touch, who don't touch the payas. Not the way that Rizal did it. And he brings from Dar Ketshuva, 181, as I mentioned, that they hear, that's extra is dinim, is severities, and we do everything possible to minimize severities. And Dakir Chaim Vishalam, Simon Tuf Tuf Pei, it's 880, says, do not put the pays behind the ear, because some say that the Rizal's statement, the Rizal's behavior was based on a Zoyar. What does the Zoyar say? Let me just tell you where that is. The Zoyar's Idra Raba, Zoyar Nosei 131b, that says clearly that you should not mix the pace to the beard. So some say maybe you could put it behind the ear, but the Zoyar, it's mashma from the Zoyar, shouldn't do that. And that's what the Darke Chaim Vishal Moses says, not to put the pace behind the ear. This is the letter of the Rebbe, and it's printed in volume 20, Igus Kedish, page 10. Okay. So let's go back now. 
So where does the custom come from, those that wear long payas? The custom, they say, some say from the Rameir Meprimishlan, who told his, um, the Rameir Mordechai HaKoyin, Shvadron, the Marsham, that he should never cut his payas. When he was a young boy, he should never cut his payas, and he would merit a long life as a result. Also, the grandchildren of Rab Chaim of Tzans say that in his name. So I'll just give some sources for that. Rab Moshe Stern, responsible Be'er Meshe 161, Darke Tshuva Tiyeridea, the one I mentioned before, Net in Toy Gavriel, in Tigalachat HaYeladim, page 46, in the footnote, and Peyes Kalacha, the book, I, the Sefer I just referred to, to uh, section 2, chapter 11. And there they discuss also as an actual source for the long payas, because we clearly have sources the other way around. The question is whether Rabbi Meir Permeshlan's directive was only to him. Was it something meant to be for everyone? The Chassam Sefer weighs in on this, and there are others as well. But the bottom line, you can say, regarding the Arizal's behavior, one is, as I said, is not to mix the two, and not to overwhelm um, the beard, which is a particular, the coarse beard, which is a particular pi kabola, pi chsidis, and I'll cite the sources in a moment, is mamshich er from meichus The hair on the head is mamshich er from atika kadisha. Sareshe ka when it says, atikim yosef akosai, sareshe ka So, not to mix these two amshachas, like I mentioned before, the Rebbe alludes to it, or says it clearly in the letter, is not to mix them. What does that mean? And payas is the mamutzah, this explains, Kabbalah explains, between the hair and the head, which is the finer hair, and the coarser hair of the beard. So that is brought in a few places. I'll just cite Eira Teira Pasha Semer, pages 588 through 593, and Ayin Bez, volume 2, pages 956 through 964. So you could basically say, based on that, the, addition, the first reason I would say is because the Razal didn't want to have more dinim than necessary. It's not payas. So why are, you, why are you letting it grow? The second reason is not to mix these two energies, not to overwhelm the energy of the beard, which is connected more to meichin, with the energy of keser, which is connected more to galgal, to the skull, which is lamaylam and meichin, higher than mind. It's to integrate the two. The payers grow long, in a sense they overwhelm and overshadow in a way, I don't say overshadow, overwhelm the beard, and it has to be integrated and internalized more. Now, as far as the Alter Rebbe, as I said, he doesn't have payas hanging down. So that question does not apply. Why he let it grow like that? It could be, he definitely followed that result because, as I said, you see the payas are definitely cut. They do not go over his beard. The hair above, meaning near the ears, is not, doesn't look like payas behind his ears. It's just let that grow because that's payas. And he didn't cut that. And there are dais that says that not cutting means you shouldn't cut too close to the skin. The question is how close? So Alter Rebbe was machmir in that. As far as we go, we follow what the Rebbe did, Friedrich Rebbe did. They did not have fear like that. There are some that say that the Friedrich Rebbe and the Rebbe but, uh, had some hair behind their ear, but I, you look at many pictures, you don't see it at all. And people who knew the Rebbe and saw the Rebbe and the Friedrich Rebbe and the Rebbe Rashab did not see that. But regardless, behind the ear is Bechal Ashayla. And I don't know if you can say that on the Alter Rebbe, but definitely growing a little more, the Rebbe took haircuts, and there wasn't a hair like the Alter Rebbe. So the end of the day is, the Alter Rebbe's behavior, was, that he behaved that way, does not mean that all the Rebbeim followed exactly that. 
even though other than the Alter Rebbe does is Kaddish and holy, but it could be that was a specific thing he did, and for that reason, as I said, as long as you don't cut too close to the skin, that's the key issue. That's how I would explain it. If anybody has more on this topic, please share it, and I'll share it here in this program. Regarding the beard, which I didn't really focus on, go to episodes 52 to 53, 128, 130, and 260, where I discuss that more at length. Okay, I hope that covered it to some extent. Always more to say, but I think that covers it. Good. Next. Next is a question about expanding 770. I'm sure this was already asked. What is your opinion? What do you think the Rebbe's opinion would be about expanding 770? And uh, another person says, and why do you think it hasn't happened yet? Another person writes, I've seen recently a petition going around, an online petition calls to expand 770. What's your opinion on this petition? Is it right? Is it wrong? Okay. So I did a little research on the whole topic, and I remember it from back then. As we know, 770 was expanded several times. First, of course, they dive in upstairs. Then that was not enough, so there's 770 downstairs. Then it was expanded in Tavshich, that was around Tavshichov Chafalov. Then in Tavshichov Ches, it expanded to the middle. Basically, the shul doubled. And then finally, in Tavshil Lamed Beis, Lamed Gimel, Lamed Gimel, it expanded all the way to where it is now, to Kingston Avenue. But as the Elam grew, it became clear that we need to expand further. So the whole Ishtalshul is, there's answers from the Rebbe about it. But let me cut straight to Tavshim Emches. Tavshim Emches, great talk, started a lot of talk about this. The Rebbe himself spoke about it. He spoke about it, um, of course, at the groundbreaking, which came after many plans and discussions that the Rebbe came out to the groundbreaking and laid the stone. The Yud Zayin Elul, Tovshin Memches. The Rebbe spoke about it then, about the need to expand 770, and then again, Lele Shana Rabbe, Tovshin Memtes, which was just a little while later, next month. We also have different exchanges that Gaboim wrote to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe responded I said, come up with a plan, make sure that then the Rebbe insists the good is Chabad and everyone has to be involved in this, has to have their issues. All that was part of the whole process. The Rebbe then gave instructions of what to be done. He did not want it to be an expenditure that would be beyond. He said clearly, $10 million is mufreches, is completely not to be considered. He wanted it to not be that high, build, high of a building. Most add one floor and, the, and it, should be, it should remain three four floors would be the, the optimal. Okay. And the different instructions and details of the matter. So you can imagine the Askonim involved in it, Chabad, and others were involved, Mr. Chase, Rabbi Moshe Hurson from New Jersey. Um, so they came up with plans and architecture that in Cholamid Sukkis, they went into the Rebbe. And we have, they went into the Rebbe and they presented in Ganed Natachn a blueprint. The architects presented a blueprint. The Rebbe right away reacted that Chazve Khalil should chep in the floor was the Rebbe had gigangan of them. Not to touch the floor where the Rebbe went on. And he said clearly that, that was, everything has to be built with the Rebbe Gang Gidavant. They clarified what that meant. The Shver Hotan Gedavent, my father-in-law. So they clarified, does the Rebbe mean upstairs? The Rebbe said, no, he means women Gedavent Hain downstairs. 
So that's the Rebbe's reference to the Shver, clearly. And basically the conclusion was that the building has to be done from north to south, which means toward Union Street, that's south, and north towards Eastern Parkway, as much as possible. But definitely not west, east you can't do further because it reached Kingston, and west also not because that was the original 770. Anyway, plans continued. The Rebbe spoke about it right after that Yechidus. It must have been. Plans went for it. What I understand from reliable sources is that the main reason it did not happen at the time was because the Union Street was required to be able to expand it. And Union Street houses, they were not able to acquire all the houses. So by the time things, the, the years passed, by the time they began to get thinking they could acquire it, the stroke wasn't ready in Memnun Bays, which would be three years later, and then, of course, we know what happened afterwards. That's my understanding. There may be more details, more information. I'm definitely not first-person, um, wit- first eyewitness or first-person witness. I mean, heard it from people who I respect and rely on, and if I get more information, I'll share it. So what does it mean by Poyal Mamish? The Herodotus stands. The Rebbe laid the, the cornerstone. There was the beginnings of building, at least upstairs. They moved the bathrooms downstairs. The women's shul uh, plaza was built, but the, what the Rebbe wanted and said clearly, it has to be expanded. Shul of the Rebbe, and he says even a place for eating cause, and for because that's where the Rebbe ate, and so on. That's in the sikhs that the Rebbe speaks. So clearly, time has come. So I will not say I'm against the petition. How could I be against? If it helps, it helps. I don't know if the petition will help. I don't know if the petition will affect anyone who makes the decisions around this. But to be against the petition? No. If it's a good Isaidus and it's not hopefully not using in any God forbid way of Machlekas, I don't even want to mention that word or any way that is unhealthy, that then uh, absolutely. This is something that we see from Tishrei. It only continues to grow. The need for 770's expansion with clear directives from the Rebbe that it should be done. So that's my uh, response to this. And as I said, if anybody has more information on this, by all means. And hopefully uh, it will happen. And uh, it will happen. Maybe Mashiach should come even before it happens. And based on Abenish of the Rebbe speaks about it as well. And then he says, of course, all Bati Knesses will go to Eretz Yisrael. So the bigger this is, the bigger the basic Knesses will be in Beis Medish of the Rebbe. Okay. Let's move to another topic. And I have to make a hefsa because the topics really are completely unrelated. When is the right time to consider getting married? Okay, so I have two questions on this. I'll read it quickly. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you for your weekly video casts. I really enjoy them. I'm writing to you with this question because of the anonymity. As background, I am an 18-year-old Holotayra Bocher, Tabali Tshuva parents. Holotayra student, Tabali Tshuva parents. I have older siblings who didn't do Tshuva with my parents when they did, and they are not observant. I'm writing to figure out when the right time to think about getting married is. At this stage, I prefer anonymity. I haven't told anyone of my thoughts. However, based on your advice, I may re- redirect my path. I don't know how to say this, but I find that I'm a highly... Let's put it this way. I don't want to use the word he's using here, but a highly intimate person. Maybe because of the greater society at large, maybe because of the internet, maybe because of hormones, but regardless. I find celibate life as a bocha very frustrating and unproductive. Of course, learning is productive, and I love learning, but at the height of my drive, I don't understand what I'm doing sitting with all males unable to release my energy toward a productive goal of starting a family. The Mishnah Perkyova says that at 18, a man should get married. I know that in our community it isn't done that way, but why not? 
I know many frustrated Bachrim who will have much to repent for later. Why are we not pushed to create families when we have both drive and youth? I do know that I lack a maturity and experience. I've never dated a woman before, and I know that there's so much to learn that I haven't. But having grown up, being taught the importance of using our reproductive organs for the work of what you describe, Kedush Kadoshin, the Holy of Holies, and not wasting energy towards fruitless efforts, I don't know why we're shackled in celibacy in our teens. Thanks. Another person writes, how, do, how to know when you are ready for Shaduchim? As a young boch leaving yeshiva and going to work, how do you know when you are ready for Shaduchim? Especially considering if you had a bit of history with girls throughout teenage life. Okay. So let's, let's be very straight and blunt and direct here. Generally speaking, the objective is that a bocher, same thing with a girl, a girl younger, but a bocher should learn, and his passion should be in learning. That will prepare him. The best time for that is our teenage years, because later we're going to be involved in work and life and survival and our families and so on. Learning and being passionate about learning. And then, whatever the age, whether it's 20, 21, 22, 23, different ages, but approximately then, to begin looking into Shaduch. However, if a guy is not learning, and he really cannot find a way, an outlet, a productive work in some way, that's, let's say, oriented Kedusha-oriented, the Rebbe has letters where he encourages people to get married. He even says some places that maybe it would be an idea that some would get married early like they do in other communities, like by the Sfardim and so on. Now, that's not encouraged necessarily, and it's not l'chadchila. And that can be for many different reasons, because we're looking that people should get mature enough. But if a person really has true nisyanus, and they talk to the mashpia and a rov, maybe it is time. I wouldn't say 18, maybe wait another year. Maybe do something, find something that you can do. Meanwhile, a little learning means case by case. But there's no real answer when to begin. It all depends on the person. Someone comes to me and they really share these issues that you're sharing. I obviously, would, I would ask questions. I would push you. I would pressure. Not pressure and pressure what to do, but I mean put pressure in eliciting from you what's really going on and then help make a decision. So basically, that's the attitude to this. And I think, don't think we should lock ourselves to some type of date and deadline and age. It's case by case. Some people do get married earlier and it's good for them. Some go longer because they are involved in Teda and other things that are Gedusha, so great. But there's no question to hang around and do nothing. Now, obviously, as I said, age has to be some maturity. If there's no maturity, even if you're wasting your time and not learning, you have to find other outlets or else the marriage may not work because, God forbid, because you want to have some maturity. Now, this is a question mostly with boys, so that's what I'm addressing. I'm not addressing the girls. So how do you know? Talk to someone you trust who's wise, who's a chassidish person, who understands uh, what Taylor expects of us, what Taylor the Rebbe expects of us, and make the decision together. But I would not lock anything out if a person's truly frustrated and challenged by this issue. Okay. I also spoke about some related topics in episodes 195 and 203, and in a special seminary edition that I did for the, for the girls' seminary in, uh, in Beis Rivka which you could also find in the series of My Life, Chassidus Applied, on our site, either at chassidusapplied.com or the earlier episodes may be on meaningfullife.com still. Check it out. You probably can find it all. Okay. Let's move another topic now. And the question is, should we be worried about the rise of anti-Semitic acts? So someone writes, the we see recently anti-Semitic 
anti-Semitism and acts growing on the rise. Should be worried. Another person writes, Rabbi Jacobson, in the beginning of episode 255, you discussed the complacency that results for the good times during the good times in Golis. The truth is that from our view in Israel, we see, that all, that we, we see all the anti-Semitism in the USA and Europe, from the violent street hate crimes perpetrated in the tri-state area to AOC and the complicity of the Democratic Party, and the various crimes in Europe, and we worry for you. While the world does have, and this I'm sure is going to be controversial for some, a fabulous leader in President Trump, it seems that despite all the good he's doing, the evil is rearing its ugly head. Even though in our times as well, which essentially is from the Vihisha Amda, that every generation you have those that are our enemies. So number one is worry is not a terror approach. Whenever anyone asks the Rebbe, whether it was in Israel during terrorist attacks or others, or anywhere else, that that's not the approach of Jews is to worry. We have betochen in Hashem, especially in Israel. So people ask the same question. You're saying we were, people were concerned about Israel with all the attacks. We should never hear from it again. But the Rebbe's approach is always, worry is not the Torah approach. That doesn't mean we're not prudent. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have locked doors, we shouldn't have security, we shouldn't have all that's necessary. We should insist the government protects any hate crimes. But worry is not the approach. I wouldn't use the word worry. I would say we have to be prudent. And we don't have to start becoming alarmist because there's a crisis. That's briefly, and I want to refer you to episodes 29, 31, 251, 252, and 262, where I discuss it further. One final question, then the Chassidus question, and then the essays. Oh, there is follow-up. I hope I have time. Let's see. Okay. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, death penalty in the Torah. I recently met a non-observant Jew who shared with me distress regarding the punishment of death required to be given by the Torah. In his words, shall one really deserve to be stoned to death for doing forbidden work on Shabbos? Please shed some light on the subject so that I could be able to help him comprehend these halachas on this subject. Thank you. Okay, let me refer you to a sicha, Vayigash Tovshin Chavtes, 5729-1969, or it may have been the end of 68. That was when they landed on the moon, they were to the moon travel. They traveled to the moon then. The Nebuchadnezzar learned a lot of heros from that, and one of them that I'm going to mention right now was that the Rebbe said he heard somebody who was asked by, it was a radio show, somebody was asked, a rabbi was asked, Chabad rabbi, how do you explain Malchus which is lashes, giving someone lashes because he ate a kazayas, he ate a little piece of something that's not appropriate. So the Rebbe said that this rabbi didn't seem comfortable to have an answer. So though his answer that he did give was acceptable, but still not really answered the question. What was the answer he gave? He said, first of all, Malchus doesn't not give in that easily. You have to have warning, hasra. And you have to have it before witnesses. And the Rebbe added even more that that person has to do it the Isser, he has to do the forbidden act, the eating, right after Betech, literally right after he was warned, or else we don't know whether he remembers he was warned. That means he knows all that, and he's probably a Tamil Chacham that knows that he has to, and he still cannot control himself, then lashes. So it's something the Rebbe says maybe happened once in a hundred years, the Rebbe's expression. But the Rebbe says still doesn't answer the question, because when they did do it, for such a small thing, lashes. So I think you can apply the Rebbe's answer to this question as well. What is the Rebbe's answer? From the astronauts. They went on a mission to the moon and they were told everything. How to eat and when to eat. How to dress, what shoes to wear. 
Every detail. You could say, who cares? It's a little detail. But this detail, if you don't do it, the whole mission is in jeopardy. And billions of dollars is in jeopardy. And all the people that are invested in this and whatever the mission has to accomplish is in jeopardy. So we learn from that a detail. And of course, it reflects what it says in the Mishnah, that a person, every person was created as an individual. Chayv Adam Lehmer, a person is responsible to say, B'Shvili Nivra Elam. Because of me, the world was created. Because if you help us save a life, you save a universe. And God forbid the opposite. An act is not just an act. And it's connected to the Rambam that says, one act can tip the scales and bring salvation to you and to the world. So when someone says just a little violation of Shabbos, it may seem to you little. But when you realize the consequences, it's not so little. In addition, of course, to all the things that skila and in general, any type of punishment, even lashes, do not happen that often or common. I would just add, as an aside, just add to today, look at a computer program. You could have millions of lines of code if one dot is extra, one dot is missing. The cell of a body, 75 or 30 trillion to 75 trillion cells. One cell goes, is mutant. What kind of havoc it wreaks? One dot in a program. So today, the question, because you may, we might not know the consequences of what Shabbos is. That needs to be explained. So I would say, well, first explain what Shabbos is, and then explain how every detail matters. Okay. Because time limitations, I'm going to do the follow-ups next week. Let's do the Chassidus question. Why does evil still exist after the Great Flood? If the purpose of Noah's flood was to cleanse the world of evil, as you discussed last week, then why is there still evil in the world? Did God use an inferior cleansing product from a 99-cent store? Okay, a little uh, irreverent, but I understand where you're coming from. Good. Answer is this. And I alluded to it in the beginning of this program, and that is, until Mashiach comes, and there's a permanent divine home in this material world, the world does not cleanse from evil. Let's define what evil means. From things that are anti-antithetical to what God wants. I'll go back to the example I gave. Life is a machine, a complex machine. The engineer built it for a purpose. Told you, here's what you do to keep it clean, to make it work efficiently, to make it hum along, to live up to its greatest potential. Here's what you don't do, or else it could cause damage. Evil is the damage to the machine. It's a displacement. Avera comes from the word displace. Mitzvah comes from the word connection. Disconnect, connect. Dissonance or integration. So when there's a dissonance, there's a separation. So when the world was created with the Tzimtzum Arish and God concealed, there was a dissonance. But there doesn't mean it was airtight. There was a kav, as Kabbalah Chassidus explains. Other Marishan had a Yetzir Tev, had a Nefeshulakis, and they could have chosen. But they were also in a world where they could mistake, make a mistake, or deliberate, because they had the choice. When the marble came, and then of course the sins got worse. When the marble came to cleanse, yes, it, what it did was refine the world in a way that now it's more conducive for refinement. But you can't say Mashiach is here already. So there's still plenty of darkness. And you see it, Der HaFloga comes afterwards, which is the Tower of Babel, and they defy God. And even after Avram Avinu, who begins to bring the light back and the divine back into the world, there were plenty of problems. There was Yishmon, there was Esau, and there was the other nations. And the story continues. Even later, the later generations, even Moshe Rabbeinu, who brings the Mishkan and builds the Mishkan, there were the Jews built a golden calf after Mount Sinai, and you had the Dosan and Aviram, and you had other problems throughout the 40 years. 
Because the world is maybe refined, the stage is, the, the world is refinement, but that's different levels of refinement that make it more conducive. Matan Teda, of course, did a tremendous change because it allowed the material world to be turned into spirit. You could say the Mabal, I haven't seen this anywhere, that the Mabal cleansed out the harsh dinim and gvuris and the harshness and coarseness that still existed from the beginning, basically when children who are spoiled and given all the gifts and they destroy their own lives, so you need to somewhat tame that. That's what the Mabal did, it tamed the world. But Matan Teda gave the power, and of course Matan Teda begins with Avram Avinu, as the Rizal says, the, that the Matan Teda gave the power to transform matter to spirit. And then the years after that, that's what we've been doing. When Mashiach comes, the Geula comes, then matter and spirit converge as one, and then we get not just what was before, before Chetet Sadas, but even greater, as I described earlier. And that's where we are right now. So now let's do the three essays. So we have three essays. This is from Essay Contest 2019. The first one is a big part of a bigger puzzle. Self-esteem Echsidis by Malka Bracha Heidingsfeld, age 15. Santa Monica, California. A shlucha student, Ol Chana High School, Los Angeles. A very prevalent issue, she writes, many people struggle with nowadays is a low self-esteem. Children these days are brought up in a way that will hopefully boost their confidence and help them later in life. It all starts when we are very young. As toddlers, we are complimented on our nice pictures. As school-age students, we are praised for the littlest action, cleaning up our rooms, and so on. All this is to nurture and raise and nurture our self-esteem. However, when we get older, we are constantly told you have to think of yourself as a nothing. Don't let your greatness get to your head. So how can we find the balance of knowing our strengths and goodness while not being egotistical? That's the theme of her essay. Very practical, well done, quite uh, thorough, well worth reading. And goes on to use chassidus to do exactly that, that balance with a nice few nice anecdotes and stories. That's the first essay. The second one is Mindfulness, The Mechanics of Obstacles by Kalman Azagwi, age 21, London, England. Shliach in Yeshivas Labavitch, London. He writes, A stressful day or a period of challenging times can cause a person to lose control of themselves. Is it possible to stay focused? There are many self-help, self-help books on this topic. What I'm going to do is take, and mindfulness is at the heart of them. Torah is called by our sages the blueprint of the world. Chassidus is the very essence of Torah and the very core of Judaism. This essay, with God's help, will shed light on the mechanics of the many obstacles we are faced with. Through the lens of Chassidus, it will do the vital task of displaying the parameters and framework of the different issues we confront, empowering the individual. goes on to describe a strategy, suggestions, the issues involved, the why, what, and how. Again, a very nice essay and worth reading. Thank you for that. Yeah. And then finally, a lot of footnotes as well. Finally, the third essay is a Hebrew one. Basically, intellectual processing as a, an approach to change, to create change. It's a catalyst to create change. It's about using technology and using intelligence for healthy ways and not non-healthy ways. 
because you can use your mind, obviously, for selfish reasons. You could also use it to make things grow. And it takes from Api Kabbalah and Chassidus, Kabbalah and Chassidus, takes different approaches to this topic, whether the body has to be eliminated or, or I'd say, neutralized, or it has to be harnessed. And uses that to understand how we integrate the divine with our minds and with our lives. And ultimately transform ourselves. Again, a very good essay. Yeah. And all these essays can be found at, at I'm sorry, at chassidusapply.com. You can also get them if you receive our emails, subscribe to our emails, free subscription. We'll send you all the updated essays. So, the only thing I left out was the follow-up, which I will do, as I said, next week. This has been My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 281. Again, dedicated oh. <laughs> Looking for the page. Here we are. Dedicated to Mati Jacobson and Sarah Denberg upon their wedding, Gavriel Mechajman, that's tomorrow. Mazel tov to them. Dedicated by the Jacobson family. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. And uh, everyone have a very blessed week and take the, all the power of Tishrei and transform Cheshvan. And may we be merit to the Gula Mitis Vashlema even before the next program. Be well.